This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Truly, Lord, without you, this, this time we're going to spend around your word will be fruitless, a fruitless endeavor without you. In vain do they labor who build a house unless you, Lord, build a house. And so we pray, God, in your mercy again towards us that you would build your church, that you would give your word divine power and effects in all our hearts and edify the church and bring others into the light of the gospel, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Would you remain standing, if you would, please, and open in your Bibles, if you have a copy of God's Word, to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think it's a page 1014 in the Black Pew Bibles. And if you're visiting today, we have been making our way through the book of 1 Peter. We've titled this series, Living Hope for Suffering People. And the reason for that is that Peter was writing to churches that were distressed under the intense social pressure and the beginnings of persecution and they were as he said aliens on this earth sojourners don't fit in really with the culture not entirely and though that's true of not only them but of us what Peter wants them to see is he wants them to see themselves as God sees them not as the world sees them and so he has been revealing to them the nature of the church, what it means to be a part of the church. We pick it up today in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, but I'd like to read beginning at verse 4, which is the larger context. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, the apostle writes, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of our Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of it to your soul. You can have a seat. Thank you. This is not an original question, but it needs to be posed time and again. The question is this. If someone were to ask you, what is the church? How might you answer, you say? While you're thinking about that, I want to say it's very important how you would answer that question because what you understand or you imagine the church to be will have a tremendous impact upon how you view yourself, a member of the church, how you interact with other Christians, members of the church, and how you participate or not participate in the mission of the the church in the world. So what is the church? Very important question. One author says, is the church a building? What's the church? It's over there, 40 Cleveland Road. The church is a place we go to. What is the church? Someone says, it's a social club. Place where we go and we just network, we make relationships, we meet people, we hang out, you know. Maybe build our personal business a little bit through these relationships. What is the church? Is it a theater where performances take place and we go as spectators to observe? What is the church, you see? You see, how you understand that will have a tremendous effect upon your own understanding of yourself and your relationship to the church. Now, we haven't moved at all, really, have we, from this matter of identity, Christian identity. Only now, Peter is not focusing so much on our individual or personal identity in Christ, but our corporate identity, our identity as a people, as the church, as, as the body of Christ. And it's important because you remember, identity leads to behavior. How you answer the question, who are you, what are you, will lead to then, what are you here for? And so Peter has been laying profoundly and deeply, layer upon layer, their Christian identity. And now he brings it to a head here in verses 9 and 10. Now thus far, going back a few weeks, in particular in verse 5, we saw that Peter has been drawing from many Old Testament passages. And the first thing he told us about the identity of the church is the fact that we are a spiritual house, he said, verse 5. We are the new temple, as it were, of God. Not like the old temple of the old covenant, not, not a temple built with, out of granite or stones or cinder blocks, but living stones. We are living stones in the new dwelling place of God, a spiritual house, built upon the living stone who is Christ Jesus, indeed the chosen precious cornerstone, that is he gives the shape 
and the angles to the spiritual house that is the church. And then he mixed the, the metaphors. He says, and in this spiritual house, we're also the priests. <laughs> we are a holy priesthood. And we, we asked ourselves, well, what does that mean? And, well, for sure it means this. It means that we no longer need any other human mediators to approach the living God. That through Christ, by faith, we can have God's ear. Think about that. That we can speak to him through prayer and know that he hears us through faith in Christ Jesus. We can pray on our own behalf and on behalf of others as well. In fact, to be priests in God's house also means that we offer sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices? Well, he calls them spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Not, not sacrifices for the forgiveness of our sins. Not sacrifices so that we might be forgiven or accepted or loved. That's been done. You see, Christ himself offered himself as the final sacrifice. And he has perfected for all times, says scriptures, those who draw near to God through him. And so what were our sacrifices, we said, as the priests in God's house? Well, we offer, as Hebrews 13 says, the sacrifices of praise. Lips that acknowledge his name. We offer the sacrifices of deeds of love. Again, Hebrews 13. With these sacrifices, how we care for one another, God is well pleased. And we offer the sacrifices, Paul says in Romans 12, of our very lives, our very bodies. In other words, we are always a living sacrifice, as he puts it. Wherever we go, we are his, living for him. So we are a spiritual house, the temple of God, a holy priesthood. And now Peter brings his description of the, of the people of God, the church, to a climax in verse 9, which we read. And there he makes very clear that the church is not a building at 40 Cleveland Road. <laughs> that the church is not a social club where you make connections. That the church is not a theater where performances take place for your entertainment. <laughs> that the church is a people. A people. And a people with certain distinctives by the grace of God. A people with a corporate spiritual identity. A people with a corporate declarative mission and a people with a corporate special relation to God. This is what we are. This is what it means to belong to the church, and not everyone belongs to the church. You notice the contrast. How does verse 9 begin? He says, but, but you are a chosen race. That it, it, in contrast to what? Well, it's been a few weeks. What did he say in verse 8 and what preceded it? He says that Christ is the cornerstone. He's the dividing line of the human race. And those who believe in him will never be shamed. But those who have not believed in him, those who disobey the word, which means who have no regard for the gospel, the good news that, that we're sinners that can be reconciled through Christ. He says those people will be crushed by this cornerstone. Then he says, but you. Mm. You are in a different place now, you see. 
But you, and he uses these four designations, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And all of those have a corporate emphasis. I need to say that because even though it may seem obvious, in our American sort of individualistic focus, we tend to think of our, only of ourselves. The, the emphasis scripturally is always on the, on the corporate nature of the people of God. A people in covenant with God. And so the you there is plural. You plural are singularly a, a sort of whole together these four things. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And he's drawing from several Old Testament passages. Exodus 19, Isaiah, and uh, Hosea uh, the, the prophet Hosea as well. Now the primary backdrop to everything he's saying here is really Exodus 19. Uh, so I like to turn there because I'm going to point some things out there. Peter is drawing from Exodus 19, so if you're able, if you have, or you could just listen if you'd rather. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8, Exodus 19. Way to the left, right? Genesis, Exodus. Um, What's the scene here in Exodus 19? God has delivered Israel in a tremendous way from Egypt, from slavery, from bondage, the parting of the Red Sea. This is incredible. He leads them across the wilderness and he brings them to Mount Sinai where he's going to enter into covenant with them and give him his law. And he calls Moses up to hear what he has to say. And in Exodus 19, for he is speaking to Moses, telling him, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. He says, tell the people of Israel, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now it's clear that Moses, excuse me, that Peter's drawing upon this and applying it to the new covenant people of God. But what I, I want to say first this is I want you to notice the pattern there. The pattern, what is the pattern? Redemption first. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I redeemed you. How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What's first? Redemption. Then identity. I brought you to myself. You belong to me. And then what? And then commission. And I'm making you, I will make you a, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, if you remain true to the covenant. And so there's the pattern I want you to see. Begins with what? The redemption of God. God's grace first. He delivered them from bondage in a miraculous sort of way. They have a new identity as they travel the wilderness. They come to, to, to be before him. And then, and only then, does he commission them. He make them a kingdom of priests. He says they would become a kingdom uh, because they will as King priests, they will 
glorify God. They will reflect God. They will announce and, and declare God's goodness to the surrounding uh, nations. They will display God's uh, goodness. They will mediate God's glory to the surrounding nations. So it begins how? Redemption, identity, commission. It's all about, look what God has done. <laughs> he redeemed us, you see. And so that's the context in, in Exodus, and, and clearly Peter is drawing upon that. And uh, then I want to point out something else before we kind of lay uh, a foundation and continue. Something else is that in the context of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the offices of king and priest were mutually exclusive. That is to say, no one individual would be both the king and a priest. And in fact, a few times that a couple kings tried to do that, it led to a whole bunch of problems, right? For them personally first. And so you say, so what's the thing going on here? I mean, this is even before the law was given. Well, he's not talking about individuals. We're back to the corporate emphasis. This is the people of God. Corporately, together, they are to be king priests. They are to be a holy nation, you see. So I want to lay that foundation. Uh, you see that first. Now, what happened next in the storyline, the plot line of the Bible? How did things work out for these people? Not too well. Not too well. They failed miserably uh, to live within the covenant with God. It didn't happen all at once, right, But over time, but things got so bad eventually that they were called by God through the prophet Hosea, not my people, lo ami. He said, I said you would be my people, and now I call you lo ami, not my people. And so this is the background, if you would, the background to, Mo, to, to Peter's usage of this idea and applying it to the new covenant people of God. But this is not the beginning of this thread. This is not the first time that God has declared someone or made someone to be king priests on his behalf. And so what I like to do is in our time here is rather than go through what all these words mean individually here and pile them up in First Peter, I like you to see the, the, this thread of God's uh, working through king priests throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Didn't begin at Mount Sinai. The first king priest was Adam, the first son of God. And he was placed in the Garden of Eden, God's dwelling place, the first temple, as it were, where God was dwelling and manifest himself. And, and, and he was placed there to, to serve and to guard and to protect. And I mentioned some weeks ago that the words that are used in Genesis by Moses are words that were used later as he wrote Leviticus that applied to the, the ministry of the priests. And the first readers of Genesis would understand that. Wow, Adam was, was the, as it were, the first priest. He does what priests do. He was there. And as was he the first king? Yes, he was given dominion, you see. Dominion over the earth. And he was to, to do what? He was to subdue because the, the earth. Because he was what? He was the image of God. 
He was to project God's glory to creation and so forth. So Adam was the first king priest, if you would, but he failed miserably as well. And sin entered the human race and divided us from him. And then we come to Exodus 19 and we come to what we've just read. God's son, again, Israel. And they are, they are told that they would be a kingdom of priests. And as we saw, they failed as well. But the prophets continued to, to extend the hope of the promises of God. He is true to his covenant loyalty, his pledges, and he pledges that there's coming one who would be Messiah, and Messiah himself would bring these two offices together of king and priest. In fact, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 6, uh, uh, 13, he portrays the coming Messiah as a priest upon his throne. A priest upon his throne. And then we arrive at the New Testament. And we know that the king has arrived. The Gospels tell us the kingdom of God has come in the person of the king, the king of kings. And then we come to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews brings it all together and tells us not only is he the king of kings, but he's our great high priest. He is the king priest par excellence. And particularly in Hebrews chapter 7. And then Hebrews, again in chapter 7, also says that in fact, this king priest that would bring the two offices together of king and priest was foreshadowed, foreshadowed by a unique individual who wasn't a a Levitical priest. He was a man named Melchizedek. What a name, huh? (laughs) Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, we're we're told, was before the giving of the law, at the time of Abraham, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, later Jerusalem, and he was also a priest of the Most High God. And he appears on the scene. Abraham pays tithes to him, and he disappears from the scene. We know nothing else. Until the psalmist writes in Psalm 110, Uh, 110 and he says there speaking forward that there's one coming who will who will serve in the order of Melchizedek that he would be indeed what this king priest and so the New Testament beloved tells us clearly that the king priest arrived in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ like Adam he was a king priest. Like Israel, he was the king priest. But unlike Adam and Israel, he did not fail. He did not fail to live up to the covenant with God. He did not fail to overcome our enemies. He has overcome our enemies as our king priest, our enemies of sin and death. Now the question comes then, if that's true, then how is it that Peter says that we are also king priests, you know? Where does that come from? And it comes, beloved, from what we've told you before and what the Scriptures, particularly New Covenant, the New Testament, repeats and what Peter has been saying over and over and over again, that it all comes through what? It comes through our spiritual union with Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to be united to him spiritually, mystically. I say mystically because it's not something you see. 
Uh, it, we are united with him, and everything that he has achieved is as if we have achieved it. Everything that belongs to him belongs to us. We share in all that he has done. He is our covenant head, our representative. And so his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His perfect righteous life is your perfect righteous life, you see. And his kingly role is your kingly role. His priestly role is your priestly role. It's through our union with Christ that we are called king priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now I want to point out something that I didn't point out as I was reading through Exodus because I wanted to wait for this moment. I wanted to point out that in Exodus 19, their becoming a kingdom of priests was conditional. Conditional. He said, if, if, Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, redemption. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In other words, you, you, they have to be special in a, in a certain way because God owns everything. Uh, so they must be a special kind of possession, and you shall be be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How? If, if, if you keep my covenant, you see. But they did not. But in Christ, Peter says, you are. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a kingdom of priests. That's what you are right now. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen race. And why is that? Because Christ obeyed the covenant. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And through the gospel and faith in Christ, we are united with him and we receive the blessings of his work. Amen? See, that is the gospel. And so this is what Peter is getting at, beloved. Uh, this glorious thread of what it means to be a king, king priest all stems from being united to the king priest and there's more yet still to come. He says you are, but Revelation says you shall. If you look at Revelation chapter uh, 5, or you just listen, I read this a few weeks back as well. There in the vision given to the apostle John as he was uh, uh, exiled on the island of Patmos, and he writes the book of the Apocalypse. In this vision, he says in chapter 5, he sees the lamb, he sees the lamb being uh, worshipped and it says there in verse 9 they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals in other words you are worthy to release God's judgment and bring about the end the consummation for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and listen you have made them past tense they you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign shall reign on the earth pointing there to the consummation uh, to the future so in the age to come we we now are a king priest but in the age to come uh, the church shall reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so 
What is the church? <laughs> Just a place you go to, a building? What's the church? A club? A, a theater? What's the church? It's this. It's a people. A people with these spiritual distinctives brought about by the grace of God. And now the question comes, if our kingly, priestly ministry in Revelation is cast into the future as reigning with Christ in the future, what sort of kingly, priestly activity are we involved in now? Is there anything we are doing now? Absolutely. That's the rest of the verse. There's a purpose statement in verse 9. Not only do we have a corporate spiritual identity, but we have a corporate declarative mission. What does he say? What does Peter say? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who is he? Him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you see. Yes, we have a corporate identity. And that identity has a future consummation, but we also have a purpose now as king priests, and that is to proclaim, to proclaim, to declare, to announce. This is, that's why I'm calling it declarative. It's vocal. <laughs> declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And what are his excellencies? What is Peter talking about? Well, the word can also be translated praises, and in some translations it is. Excellencies, the praises of God. It's talking about the, those attributes of God and those things that God has done that are praiseworthy, right? His, the, 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 the praiseworthiness of God's grace and mercy that reached you and called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, you see. The wondrous wonderful, praiseworthy power of God that, that opened your eyes. These are the excellencies of God, his, the wonders of His saving grace and love and mercy, the wonders of how coming into union with Christ, He began to transform you, began to change you, not all at once, but began to do a work that he's going to be faithful to complete, you see. And so we declare these, these excellencies of God. We do it where? Where do we do it? We do it inside with the people of God to build each other up, right? Our, our, our sacrifices are, are the sacrifices of praise. Praise for God together. That acknowledge, that lips that acknowledge his name together. And we we need to hear that. We mentioned this three weeks ago when we come together. That's why we worship together because we are filled throughout the week with, with the unpraisy worthiness of the world, <laughs> the darkness of the world. And we come back in here to be reminded of what the excellencies of God that not only exist out there like in some generic sense, but those, the grace that reached you and you and you and me and we remind ourselves of who God is and what he's doing. And then this, this, 
this proclamations of the excellencies of God also takes place outside these four walls, right? Uh, proclaiming the excellencies of Him to a lost world. Like the book of Hebrews says, we go outside the camp, outside Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, out there in the place of hostility. Yes, we go outside and we declare the praiseworthiness of God, spreading the good news of His grace and His mercy. And so this is... This is part of our kingly priestly ministry or the ministry of king priests within the church family and outside the church family. You say, I'm not sure I see how that's like reigning presently with him, kind of like the idea of king has to do with authority and has to do with power. Well, like when Jesus came, he cast out demons and so forth, demonstrating his power. Beloved, listen, listen, we do wage war now as king priests. But we don't wage war with swords or guns or politicians. We wage war with the gospel. There is nothing that truly subjugates evil in human hearts other than the message of the cross. It is the word of the cross that transforms human beings. There is much good we can do other than that, and we should because we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. That's to be true. We display God's power, yes, but let it never, never get in the way of our primary mission, which is seen right here, proclaiming the excellencies of Him because that, the message of the cross, is the only thing that truly, to the core, to the heart, overcomes evil, you see. Ephesians chapter 6, we wage war in a different way, don't we? With the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Second Corinthians uh, where Paul says that we take every thought captive and bring it in submission to Christ. That is the truth, yeah. So we are involved in a divine warfare, as it were. Uh, you remember, think about this. It's hard to grasp it because even those who were closest to Jesus had a hard time getting it. Remember the book of Acts, how the book of Acts started. What's the book of Acts? A record of what took place after the resurrection. What took place after the resurrection? Well, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus blew their minds, opened their hearts, helped them understand what the Scripture is about. It's about Him. And then Acts says that He spent 40 days with these disciples, uh, on and off, teaching them about the kingdom of God, what a discipleship, huh? 40 days with Jesus, <laughs> learning about the kingdom of God, and they still didn't get it because at the end of that, it says in the book of Acts, this was their quest to them. Question, Acts 1-6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you bring it down, Lord? Let it come down, fire and brimstone. And Jesus answered them, well, kind of yes and kind of not. <laughs> He says to them, verse 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. You don't have it all wrong. And then he says, verse 8, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you later on the day of Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses. You see, what's he saying? He's saying, that's how the kingdom comes now. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you know. And so we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we are involved in warfare as spiritual kings and priests, but our warfare 
our, our, our weapons is the truth and love, displaying the power of Christ in our lives. And he describes the one whom we are to proclaim as the one who called you, us, out of darkness and into his light. Says that's what we're talking about. That's who we are talking about. When he, when he says, when he talks about calling us out of darkness into light, what is he talking about? He's talking about the divine side of conversion. If you, look, if you think of conversion as a coin, the, the human side is, is always seen as what? Repentance and faith. We repent when we see Christ and we put our faith in him. But how did we see Christ? Because on the other side of the coin, what? He called you out of darkness and into his light, you see. That's what happened to you. Uh, and so the, 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 the divine side of conversion is often depicted as that. as God doing a spiritual work in the heart of an individual that brings light, the light of understanding to their soul. It always comes through the gospel and the Spirit's power. So for example, in Acts chapter 26, uh, Luke records that God said to Paul that he sent him to open their eyes, the, the Gentiles, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, a place, belonging, a place among those who are sanctified, set apart, how? By faith in me. Now, Paul there is seen as God's instrument. Strictly speaking, Paul doesn't actually turn anyone from darkness to light, but he preaches the gospel that does that, and Paul himself would make clear the power doesn't come from the messenger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this, For God, follow this carefully, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? At the creation, right? Let there be light. And so he says, that God who has the creative power of being able to say, let there be light, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where could we see that? In the face of Jesus Christ. God shines a light. He says, let there be light in a soul and that they may see my glory, and to see his glory who is invisible, you'll see it in the face of the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. You see, that's what he's talking about. And that, that, that is what he's, he's, he's saying, we are praising this one who has that kind of power in our lives. And that is to be the basis for why we would want to live for Christ. Why would we want to live a lifestyle that he's going to describe? It's starting in verse 11 in 1 Peter because of you are a chosen race. You are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And he called you out of darkness and into light that you may proclaim his excellencies. And this calling of God, how does it take place? Well, it's not just, it's not just hearing an invitation. It's a calling that, that, that's not just a, a, a general sort of invitation to believe in him. It's a calling that is performative, 
That is to say, the calling creates what it seeks in an individual. See, see if, you, if you can follow me, listen. There's a general call. What's the general call? Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you were here at Christmas time, we labored to explain the gospel, and then speaking on the Lord's behalf as his messengers, we said, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Repent of your sin. Believe in him. So now for, as an illustration, two people hear that. Two people hear that call, but only one responds in faith. And why would that be? Because while both heard an outward call, only one heard an inward call. A call in the heart that shed the light of the glory of the knowledge of God. He's real. And he is what? Jesus Christ. That's what took place in that individual. And that's an act of mercy, an act of grace. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a call that creates the reality that it seeks, the inward call. Paul puts it this way. He places this calling in the middle of what some call that great chain of salvation in Romans 8. Right? What did Paul say then in Romans 8? Paul said, those he predestined, seeking of God, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, declared them not guilty, forgiven. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified, transformed completely, made like him. As, 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 as Chris read earlier, we will see him as he is and will be made like him. Now, move backwards in that chain, you see? Those, who are those who will be made like him and glorified? It will be those who are justified, those who have been forgiven of their sins. And who are those that are justified and forgiven of their sins? Those whom he called. So you see, that can't refer to what? The general call. Because not everybody responds to that call. Who were the called? Those in whom Christ shed that light. The Spirit shed that light. And those whom he called, who were they? Those whom he predestined. And so this is, this is the, the glory and the wonder of what God has done in your life. Look what God has done through his Son. You think, I don't know what to say when I proclaim his, the, his excellencies. Are you a Christian? <laughs> then talk about what he's done for you, you see. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but be overwhelmed by this yesterday because I went to the memorial service of my lifelong friend from junior high. Sherry and I went. And as we were there, I was seeing people I haven't seen in 20 years, 30 years, some cases, 40 years, literally touching 50 in some cases. People I haven't seen, and then, you know, it's the, it's the pictures that get to you, right? The slides. When the slides start going, and you see yourself standing there next to this guy as a teenager, and you're like, oh, God, look at me now. I mean, <laughs> that's one kind of thought that enters your mind. But you know what was really entering my mind? This was entering my mind as I looked, and I saw people who were still where they were 40 years ago. Only worse, because they've been on the broad road that leads to destruction for four decades. 
And I, my lip was quivering while we were singing. I was thinking, look what God has done. Through his mercy, through his grace, who are we, we say, that he should love us? Who am I that I should be called? But I was. And I was overwhelmed with joy uh, knowing that the one whom we were memorializing, he came to faith. He was one of my band members that had come to faith. And for years on and off, I said, is he in? Is he out? Is he in? Is he out? And they shared that the, the reason the memorial service was being held there because for the last several years, he was serving there as a deacon. He was in the faith. And then the joy wasn't over. Before the service was over, I forgot to tell first hour this. So here's a bonus. Okay, it's a bonus. Uh, and that was that uh, another one of the members of our band came up to me afterwards with him and his wife, and he said, hey, just want to let you know we're being baptized tomorrow. He said, Look what God has done. Don't doubt the gospel. If you're here, you're here because of that mercy that came through his son. I think of the lyrics of And Can It Be. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Can you say the rest of that with me, some of you? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and what? I followed thee. Redemption first. Identity. And then what? Commission. Follow him. Follow him. Now, at the end in verse 10, he returns to, he returns to their identity, only now with a sort of a slightly different emphasis. And he says they have a very special corporate relation uh, with God. They are now his people. Look at verse 10. Uh, once you were not a people. What's he mean? He's talking to Gentiles from all kinds of different pagan backgrounds. They were strangers to God's promises, strangers to God's covenant. They weren't one cohesive people. They were idolaters. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. And once again, he draws upon Old Testament passages, Exodus 19, Hosea chapter 2 again. Hosea, remember, speaking for God was the one who said, uh, they were not my people now. Well, in Hosea 2.23, uh, the prophet says, speaking for the Lord, and I quote, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to Loami, not my people, you are my people. In other words, though Israel had been repudiated because of their sin, God stayed true to his covenant. He promised there would be coming a time of a great regeneration uh, among the people of God. But it would be more than just Jews. It would be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that would be grafted into this great promise of God. And then he also quotes as Exodus 19, 5, which I read earlier, which says, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession and I say again does God own all nations yes he owns everything 
So what do you mean we'll be his people? Every, pe- every person is his in one sense, but not in this sense. You will be my treasured possession. My people. A special people out of all the world. Uh, King James, uh, in, in some places, had the translation, a peculiar people. It's a good English word if you speak old English, but... <laughs> When I think of peculiar people, I think maybe three or four people I know, and I, I think that's pretty peculiar. That's right, but, you know, could I be part of that? <laughs> no, what's, what's he saying? I want you to get the breadth of this. And so th- this, this translation here, this treasured possession is something you are to understand, beloved. Treasured, something you treasure is something you, you value highly. You value it highly. And I was thinking this week, how do I think of this? If my house was burning, you know where I'm going, right? If my house was burning, what would I rush in to get if I had 30 seconds? Yeah. What would I rush in? Whatever it is, it's something I treasure and I prize. Your parents, you're going to run in and get your kids, right? <laughs> Say amen. Yes, parents, yeah. Okay. Some of you are like, oh, right. <laughs> Can we talk about this? No. <laughs> You're going to get your, but some of you have other things. You know, you have, maybe you have photographs you never scanned yet, and they're there. It's the only place you have that photograph, right? Maybe you've done a lot of work on some project, and it's on your hard drive, and you have never backed that thing up to the cloud or anywhere. <laughs> so you, you, what do you go back for? You go back for something you treasure, you prize, Do you ever think of yourself in that light? That this is what you are to God. You were created in Christ Jesus. You are his workmanship, poema, his poem. Ephesians chapter 2 says. He prizes you because it cost him what? The blood of his son who is now forever a God-man for eternity. That, 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 it's that kind of joy you want to have that, that flows from just knowing there's, you, you belong and whatever the world thinks, there's one who loves you like that. You know, that, that idea of treasuring something, you know, it's like, it was, it was like the, um, the expression on your, the, the, the children's, maybe not yours, but the, any child's face on Christmas morning, that, that treasured possession for when they opened the gift for 30 seconds until they tossed it out and grabbed the next one, right? <laughs> then you got the next treasured possession. Only God does never, what, tell you, toss you out. You are forever in Christ, one whom he treasures. I tell you this, that um, if, you don't, if you don't really drill this down in your conscience, then you will forever be trying to find um, a sense of purpose, belonging, identity, strokes. You'll be looking for strokes from other people and other places because you've overlooked the fact that this is how the creator of the world, the living God, thinks of you. What's the world say about identity? You are what you do. You are how you look. You are what you possess, what you accomplish. Scripture says, look what God has done. You are the child of God.
created in Christ Jesus. That's where you need to go, beloved. Because identity leads to behavior. One day, at the end of this journey, in the time when we reign with Him in the new heavens and the new earth, it would all come to its consummation. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Well, it has come in Christ and by the Spirit in the church, but now He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Look what God has done to bring you into this family. And my friends, I say to some of you, right now today, some of you are still not in the people of God. God holds out his hand to you through me right now. He holds out his hand to you. And he says, you can share in this destiny. You can be a child of God. Who are the children of God? We read it at Christmas. He came to his own people, the Jews, and they they knew him not. But as many as received him who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to be called, to become the children of God. God holds out his hands. And he says, I will forgive you of your sin. I will wipe the slate clean and you will belong to me for an eternity. Repent of your sin. Humble yourself. Tell God you know you're a sinner and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. May God give the grace that you need to each of you to do that. And children, remember, this is not something your parents can do for you. Something you and God can talk about. Well, let's pray.